Welcome to the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut. And I'm Urano Pais. And today we're talking about instincts. Yeah, finally. I love this theme on the Enneagram. And we always need to remember we are animals. There is this whole aspect of us being primates. And I'm glad we, are, we got there uh, to talk about this theme. Yes, it's an important dimension of the Enneagram, the instinctual level of our personality. It's the animal wisdom in us. It's the part of us that operates according to our animal instincts, the same way all animals do. Yes. And I like, B, that you and I have developed a way to talk about instincts that covers some new things. Um, I think we have come to interesting conclusions on how people should work on the instincts, things that I, we haven't heard before. Also, I think we make sure that instincts are studied together with subtypes. And I think we talk about different dimensions of instincts. So hopefully this will be an exciting podcast. Yes, and I think... First of all, we're going to spend some time defining the instincts. What exactly are the instincts? Where are they located in, in the human? And that'll be important too. Now, first of all, I want to mention a, a word about terminology. And that is that in the Enneagram community today, a lot of people talk about instincts not necessarily as the three instincts we're going to be talking about or the three main instinctual drives that we talk about when we talk about instincts in the human personality according to the Enneagram model, but they talk about them as a synonym or the same thing as subtypes. And this is because there's uh, one school of thought in the Enneagram world that described what we talk about as the subtypes, which are the 27 subtype personalities, the 27 types that you get when you mix uh, the dominant instinct with the type. In other words, there are three versions of each of the nine types according to which of these three instincts is dominant in your experience. Uh, there's a school of thought that calls the subtypes instinctual variants instead of subtypes. They called the wings subtypes we don't believe wings are subtypes. Uh, we're working more in the Claudio Naranjo tradition of calling the 27 subtypes subtypes instead of instinctual variants. But I want to say this because sometimes when people out there talk or use the word instincts, they're not talking about these three biological drives that we're going to talk about. They're talking about the 27 subtypes because they're taking the term or the phrase instinctual variants and shortening it to say instinct. So I just want to make really clear that we're not talking about the subtypes today. We're really talking about these three instincts that are part of what forms the basis of the subtypes. But these are a separate topic that also combines with that topic of subtypes. But today we're really wanting to focus on this topic of instincts because it's so important and it's very interesting for people, I think, to start to understand. Yes, and when we mention other schools or teachers, where we have an intention to be completely respectful, and many times we are friends with these other teachers, uh, we try to clarify only some different um, terminology or even perspectives. And it's on instincts and subtypes, I think each teacher in each school 
have approached the theme differently. And you will find the biggest differences, perhaps, among schools uh, when it comes to this theme. Even if we talk about Claudio Naranjo, I personally don't agree much with the fact that he talked about subtypes only, it's a little bit like disregarding uh, the, the study of the instincts themselves. So I, I think it's important to bring both uh, to surface and work uh, in parallel with these two things. But you said it, and let me just emphasize it. Instincts are not subtypes. So instincts are more body-based, and subtypes contain this more body-based energy of the instincts, but it mixes up with the emotional energy of, of the passion of type, as we explained in other podcasts. Is this right, Lee? Is this how you see it also? Yes, exactly. When we talk about subtypes, we're really talking about the ways that the instincts get expressed through the personality, the full personality, which especially includes the lower emotional, conditioned emotional reactions that we have. So when we talk about subtype, it's like how the instinct expresses itself or manifests in our personality that we express every day. Now, where are the instincts located? What are we talking about? We're talking about the belly center. The instincts are located in the belly center. Can you say more about where they're located and how they operate, Uranio? Yeah, it's like the viscerae, right? It, it's, it's the belly button. It's really the gut. Um, while the passion of type comes basically from the heart space and what we call the fixation, a fixed belief, comes from the head space. Now, it's important to understand that also in connection to the brain, meaning that the instincts are more connected to the reptilian brain, while the passions of type uh, that uh, conditioned emotion of each of the nine types is more connected to the limbic system and the fixation together with all forms of thoughts are connected more uh, to the neocortex. Exactly. We're talking about the belly center. We're also talking about uh, what's sometimes called the older brain, uh, the reptilian brain, and there's also parts of the limbic brain that are included in kind of the brain survival system. Uh, but we're talking about those parts of the brain, the brain stem, the hypothalamus, and the kind of alarm system that, that's oriented to survival in the brain. Yes, and when it comes to instincts, B, I think we are very similar to animals, but not only mammals. Sometimes you and I use uh, videos in workshops showing birds, sometimes penguins, sometimes other animals of different kinds, and it's wonderful to see those behaviors in the animal world. Now, we are part of the animal world, aren't we? Yes, exactly. And it's important to remember that, that we have an animal part of us and that it gets expressed every day in our instinctual reactions, uh, which I love the way you say this, are very fast. Uh, our instinctual reactions um, are an incredible source of motivation for us. 
and they operate very quickly. Yeah, I think they get expressed or not be. Because different from animals, we have lots of layers that we put on uh, the instincts. And sometimes they stay more hidden and we don't own the animal part of us. Um, so, for instance, I was walking this morning, uh, actually walking here in London with my wife. And then my dog uh, was a bit angry with someone who was passing by. And my wife said, wow, I think that we are like this and we just don't show it. And it's exactly like this. We have become too civilized. And one of the things about instincts is to be aware of them, to allowing them to exist. I mean, they have always existed. But when we go completely against them, there is there's a problem. Uh, at the same time, we don't want the instincts to take over and be in charge of our lives, right? We are better than animals. Uh, we are humans and we can do better. And there are several ways that we need when we do inner work to manage the, these instincts so that they don't become as crazy as they, they are in animals. So it's paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes I'm not sure we're better than animals, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think animals yes. sometimes are probably a little more healthy than we are at times. Yeah, I think, I think this brings another interesting point. The fact that animals are actually more intelligent than us uh, when it comes to instincts. Like, it's easy to see how a dog smells or hears better than we do. Um, and I think think that instincts tend, tend to not be distorted in the animal world like we do distort, right? So what do you mean by distorting instincts? Ah, okay. That's a good conversation for us to have. Distorted instincts uh, exist in human beings because we don't allow the three instincts that we'll talk about to be completely open and free-flowing and being activated when it's needed, when life um, requires us to activate them. Now, we're going to talk about the three instincts, but uh, the distortion means that we rely too much on one that we end up calling the dominant, and we don't use much of one of them, another one of them. And we particularly in our school, we call this third instinct the repressed instinct. But we'll come back to this. Um, I think it's important to, to talk more about the distortion or to even conceptualize instincts. What would you like to add, B? Well, I would say that when we're very healthy, our instincts operate as needed. So when we're under threat, or when we need to do something to support our survival, our instincts kick in and they direct us toward getting what we need. Now, when they're embedded in the personality, part of the conditioned personality is an overly having an overly subjective view of reality. So we're not actually in touch with reality as it is in a more objective sense. We've, we filter reality through our personality perspective. 
And so our instincts also kind of get distorted and filtered according to our conditioned personality, according to our emotional patterns, our mental patterns of belief and and reacting emotionally. So for instance, uh, our, our instincts may fire off or get activated when it's not really necessary. You know, I, I'm a self-preservation dominant and I think about food and eating all the time. It's something that comes up for me a lot. We joke that, you know, when we're having breakfast, we think about in our family, we think about what we're having for lunch. When we're having dinner, we think about what we're having for dinner the next night. So there's a way that I overfocus on food in a way that's not really necessary. My survival isn't threatened. I'm very fortunate in that I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm going to be okay. And, and so that overfocus on what I'm going to eat tomorrow or, or where my next meal is coming from is a function more of the rest of my personality, not my instincts. And I think it happens that way for social dominance and sexual dominance, that there's an over-functioning of that instinct. It's, it's, it's getting fired off. It's operating much more of the time than it really needs to. And that's part of what we mean when we say that in the context of personality, our instinctual drives are distorted. They're not like kind of going away when we don't need them and coming up when we do in a natural way. They're sort of triggered or or repressed more to serve the personality than to serve our survival in 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 the way that it might for animals, let's say. Yeah, very good points, B. And can you define instinct, though, a bit better before we carry on talking about the distortions and some other Well, I think instincts are an organismic response. You know, it's something that, again, comes from the fact that we are animals oriented towards survival uh, that are very, very automatic. They are impulses, they're reactions that drive us to get what we need to survive. And they're you know, David Daniels used to call them biological imperatives. They're things that we don't think about at all, but it's, so it's not rational. It's something that just gets triggered in us where we are motivated to move into action very quickly uh, to get what we perceive that we need to survive or that we just actually do need to survive. The instincts are in the basis of our being and representing the lowest level of awareness possible in what is meaningful to talk about when doing inner work. So this, these more automatic behaviors and drives that um, come with the instincts need to be worked on. Uh, we need to work on them, actually, even ideally before we work on emotions and uh, thoughts. So when we talk about the Enneagram passions, meaning the emotional vices, one per type, as we discussed in the previous podcast, we, we need to know that instincts come before that. And also the subdivision that is um, also the, in the contemporary Enneagram feud, we have subdivided the instincts in three categories, uh, and they are self-preservation, social, 
and sexual or one-to-one. -one. Would you like to speak a little bit about this subdivision, B? Sure. And this actually parallels what you find in uh, some modern books that talk about our unconscious selves, our, the way our brain is oriented to survival, our instinctual intelligence. Uh, for instance, there's a book called Instinctual Intelligence, uh, and it's the, sub, the subtitle is The Primal Wisdom of the Nervous System and the Evolution of Human Nature. There's a book called Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do, and another book called Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. I would refer you to those books uh, because they talk a lot about the way our brains are oriented towards survival and even the way they, people have observed these three categories of instincts. Uh, one category of instincts that's really very much directed towards self-preservation, which is a kind of sense of an orientation to really focusing on your own self and your own survival in terms of, do I have enough resources? Am I feeling safe? Am I in a secure place? Uh, do I have a sense of structure beneath me? Uh, am I okay? Um, another grouping of instincts is sometimes called the social instinct. Uh, and this is an instinct that's very much focused on what's my relationship to the group? How am I related to the collective? In the animal kingdom, I always think about this as uh, the way the animal relates to the herd, right? And animals need to be in a herd often to survive. I think this may be harder to understand in our current era, but in previous eras of history, you didn't survive unless you were in, in a tribe. And that may even be true um, to some degree today. So it's how am I related to the group, the collective? Now, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking if I'm a social dominant subtype or if, social do if the social instinct is my dominant instinct, that means I have to like being in groups or I have to be, feel comfortable being in groups or I can't be an extrovert. And I think these things are incorrect. We can talk more about that later, but I wanted to mention that up front, that the social instinct, it, it's more the definition of you in relationship to the group uh, or the social relationships of the people around you. Now, the, the sexual instinct, we sometimes call it the one-to-one -one instinct. Usually when we're in a setting where maybe using the word sexual doesn't work so well, like a business setting, but the sexual instinct is the instinct that's really about merging with another person. It's about one-to-one -one bonding in service of survival. It's about a kind of merger or fusion with someone else that's very instinctual or body-based. And it's also the energy of rivalry. Uh, because in the animal kingdom, we see when uh, two animals are trying to mate, there's often a rivalry. You have to beat out the rival um, to get the, the partner. And so there can be an energy of competition or aggression with some sexual dominant people. And also it's the energy of creativity. Um, and so, and with the social instinct, there can be, it can be about friendship. It can be about social relationships that aren't necessarily uh, sexual. Anything else you would add to what I've said to define the three instincts? I loved your definition. As a social dominant uh, myself, I would just say that social dominance is about the survival of the herd itself, as you said. 
And it's also about the survival of the planet, of humanity, of ideals even that uh, define us and make us be who you are. It's important to know that the instincts are very, very fast. Um, we sometimes say that a thought has the speed of X, uh, an emotion has the speed of 10X, and an instinct has the speed of 100X. So it's this fast. And what it means is that it's impossible to work on the instincts through self-observation. You can be the best person in the world in self-observation and you won't uh, still be able to, to spot the instincts before they happen. Also, they are very unconscious and also insatiable. They are the part of us that doesn't really want to negotiate. It's either yes or yes. So the, the way the instincts typically express themselves in the context of personality is one tends to dominate. Takes, it tends, one tends to take up more real estate or more of your attention, more of your focus than the other two. Now, this is a little bit like the idea that we have three centers of intelligence and each person in personality tends to focus more or live more from one center than the other two. Uh, and then if you're a heart type or a body type or a head type, you tend to focus on one specific type within that triad of type. So I'm a heart type. I come more from the heart center than the other two centers. And in that sense, in personality, I'm out of balance. And part of the work of working with the Enneagram is getting more in balance, coming more from all three centers. And then in the heart center, I focus more on type two because I'm a two. Now, within being a two, I have another, a kind of third level of focus where I'm out of balance, focusing on one more than the other two, which is for me as a two, I'm a self-preservation two. Self-preservation for me is more of a focus. Now, of course, we have to remember that these instincts operate much of the time in an unconscious way. So it's not like I'm aware when I walk around that I'm kind of oriented toward preserving my safety or being a self-preservation dominant subtype. In fact, when I first learned which subtype I was, it was very surprising to me because I hadn't really seen myself as being someone who was self-preservation dominant. And that's in part because we have to be really, really careful when we define the instincts because the way we end up experiencing them in personality is very much colored by which type we are. So one of the things Uranio and I often emphasize in our teaching about the Enneagram is that while it's really important to understand the three instincts and how they operate, and especially your dominant instinct um, and your whole instinctual sequence, which I'll mention, I'll define in a moment, um, it's also really important to recognize that um, the that your focus may not always be clear to you. It may take you a little bit of, of work to even understand which subtype you are, which one of these three instincts is your dominant one, because sometimes it manifests in ways that aren't so obvious. Now, we call the order of instincts, in other words, which instinct is dominant, which instinct is second, and which instinct is third, or what we call repressed, we call that an instinctual sequence. Now, in some schools of thought, they've called that a stack. 
We don't call it a stack because we believe that a stack kind of connotes something that's fixed. And these are biological energies. It's almost like these are three energies that are in tension with each other. Uh, they're drives, they're energetic biological drives. They're not like books on a stack and a table. So we call it a sequence. And that one instinct tends to dominate. It tends to sort of be uh, more prominent in that sequence. It takes up more room. It's much more, it directs your focus much, much more. And again, often in ways that you don't see at first until you have the help of the Enneagram to shine a light on how exactly your instinct plays out in your life, usually through your subtype personality. But we find that one tends to be dominant. One of the instincts tends to be second. Now, what do we mean by second? It's sort of in the middle. It's in a secondary role. It can tend to be more normal, sort of not, not overdone or not underdone. However, it can also be somewhat overdone or underdone, depending on the individual. Uh, but we do find that when you work with it, it tends to be more easy to bring into normal range. And I'll use myself as an example. I'm self-preservation dominant, and my social instinct is second. Now, when I first started working with the Enneagram, my social instinct actually wasn't so developed. I would say it was a little more repressed. Uh, for instance, I was really afraid of speaking in front of people. Uh, when I did group work early on, a lot of times when I would speak in front of the group, I would start, I would get really emotional and I would have a hard time speaking. Either I would be very afraid or I would start crying. It took me a lot to kind of get more comfortable uh, being more powerful in front of the group. And social twos, twos that have social dominant, tend to have an easy time speaking in front of people. They tend to even enjoy it. So your second secondary instinct tends to be in the second position. And then you have a third instinct that we find is even more than a blind spot, repressed. In other words, energetically, we're pushing it out of consciousness. And of course, these things operate unconsciously, so you're not trying to avoid anything consciously. It's just something that is just really never occurs to you. And so we'll talk more about the repressed instinct, but that's how we define the sequence. Anything else you would say about that sequence of instincts, Uranio? Well, first, B, I would like to say that we usually suggest that people find their subtypes first, and when they do, they will know what the dominant instinct is because it's the same as the subtype that the person finds out. We think it's more trustworthy if people find the subtype first. And then there will be later on a, a task of finding out what your, is your repressed instinct. And this way, you'll find which is your uh, instinctual sequence among the six different instinctual sequences. But what um, I want to add is that when an instinct is distorted to be dominant, what this actually means is that we comp compensate for a perceived lack around that area of life with excess of that thing. It's like we put an excessive amount of attention on it. And similarly, when an instinct is distorted to be repressed, we compensate a similar perceived lack in that area of life by 
forgetting about it, by devaluing or giving up this whole sphere of life. So sometimes the problems behind being self-preservation dominant or self-preservation repressed, and the same to social or sexual, the problems may be the same or similar. But what changes and changes completely, like they become opposite, are the coping mechanisms, the, the, the strategies to cope with those problems. And uh, we can talk about this later, because while you are self-press dominant, I am a self-press repressed. And sometimes it's really funny to see how different we can be in that particular area. Yes. And so what you can start to see as we talk about these sequences is that there are actually six instinctual sequences. So there's basically six possible ways of these three instincts being ordered in a person. So for instance, there can be a self-preservation one who has the social instinct in the second place and the sexual instinct repressed, or there can be a self-preservation one that has the sexual instinct in the second place and the social instinct repressed. And those people are going to look a little bit different. I've noticed this especially in fours and, and sixes because fours and sixes of all the nine types, the three subtypes of the fours and the sixes look the most different from one another. So for instance, if you have a self-preservation four who has sexual instinct in the second place and has the social instinct repressed, that person looks quite different than the self-preservation for who is the same subtype who has the social instinct second and the sexual instinct repressed. So we've started to notice that there are certain characteristics of these sequences, although we're still working on getting clear about that and how much we can really say given the variation when you apply that to the nine types. But it's really important to understand that there are even differences between, there are even two different kinds of social dominant people depending on the sequence. There are two different kinds of sexual dominance per type, depending on the sequence. And if you really start studying this carefully and you're working with the Enneagram a lot, you can start to see these subtle distinctions and they can be very important. For instance, the self-preservation for who has sexual second tends to be a little bit more, they can get more angry. They tend to have like a higher energy. Uh, and whereas the self-preservation for who has social second can be a little more melancholy, uh, can be a little bit quieter and more subdued. And so these are the kinds of subtle distinctions that you can start to learn about once you understand that there are these six instinctual sequences and so six possible subtypes really for each type. Yeah, studying the instincts adds a whole dimension of complexity to the Enneagram um, system. And that is beautiful. However, I want to say, if you are getting concerned that this is becoming too complex, don't worry, because you can study this little by little. You can always come back to this podcast and listen to it again. Now, eventually, we are saying that ideally, we should get to the point of not only talking about nine types, but talking about 27 subtypes, and we had a um, podcast about subtypes, and then even get to 54 different profiles, like nine types times six instinctual sequences. Now, 
we don't need to get there right away. I just want to make this clear because that would be too complex to start with. Yes, and we need to take things step by step when learning the Enneagram, especially if you're new to it. But the instinctual component is a very important part because, again, it includes this animal part of us that we need to embrace and understand uh, as part of our psychological and spiritual development. Let's do a short break. The Enneagram 2.0 podcast goes live every other Thursday on all main platforms. Stay tuned to learn more about yourself and others. Be and Yiranyu offer much, much more high-quality Enneagram content on www.cpenneagram.com. If you are an Enneagram enthusiast, visit the website now. Hello, it's me, Uranio. Just to tell you that B and I launched a new online workshop called the Enneagram Masterclass. It's a six-hour video course that you can access at cpenneagram.com. You can go at your own pace and have lifetime access to it. Many beginner students have already watched it, but advanced students can also learn about the nine types in a deeper way. We can't wait for you to check it out. Get $75 off your purchase by using code CHESTNUTPIES75 on cpenneagram.com. Sometimes we hear teachers saying that the instincts are purely evolutionary, that they, we, we need to see only the biological aspects of them, and we don't quite agree with that. We actually agree that they are mostly evolutionary and that uh, the, there is a big aspect of them that comes from our biology. However, as we work with people, we clearly see some patterns and some very important uh, pieces of work to be done with each person depending on the instinctual sequence, the dominant and the repressed instinct in all the levels. The instincts are embedded in our personality, so they're inextricably connected to our psychology. So when we hear people talking about the instincts kind of isolated as only biological or evolutionary, we believe that that's reducing all psychology to biology. And while absolutely the instincts are the biological animal wisdom part of us, they are connected to the other centers. So the belly center and the heart center and the head center are talking to each other. There, there's, there, there's a way they're interconnected in the context of the functioning of a, of a personality. I love this point that you're making, B, and it's important to understand that psychological work can include the instincts. Psychological work is not only about emotions or thoughts. You know, psych psychological work can be very, very comprehensive. Yes, and oftentimes, of course, psychological work includes um, something that comes from our instincts, because again, they're all connected. And in our inner work retreats, sometimes we focus on different things, depending on what's coming up for the person, what, what needs to be worked on in that moment in terms of where the person is in their life. Sometimes we'll focus on, an, on a subtype pattern that, of course, includes instinct and emotion or the passion. 
And sometimes we'll focus really on the dominant instinct and how the dominant instinct is manifesting or over-functioning and how that's creating an issue for the person. Other times we'll work with the repressed instinct where the pers- that, that instinct that's completely not in the picture for the person, the person's kind of given up on that whole sphere of life and doesn't see things like uh, in, in certain ways, like self-pres-repressed people can actually put themselves in danger without realizing it. As we say, there's sometimes a suicidal tendency, even unconscious, of course, that self-preservation dominant people have. They don't take care of themselves. In terms of the social repressed person, person who has the, the repressed instinct as the social instinct, that person can sometimes be skeptical of groups or not want to be included in the group or be suspicious and mistrustful and get even a little bit traumatized uh, when in a group. Um, the, the sexual repressed person can give up on partnership, on manifesting a really close, intimate connection with another person, can sort of in one way or another just feel like, well, that's not for me. It's not going to happen. Uh, it just, they don't get activated in a way that motivates them uh, to find uh, that kind of uh, intense or close relationship. So these working with the repressed instinct is always also very important. And especially in the context of an, of an inner work effort, like when we do depth work with the Enneagram and our retreats, it's interesting to look at the whole sequence as a system and to really understand what's going on in your sequence, uh, what's going on with your dominant instinct, what's going on with the second instinct, what's happening with the repressed instinct and how you can intervene when you're doing inner work to address what's happening in those ways with the full sequence and the different parts. However, we would advise if you're hearing about this for the first time, if you're new to the topic of instincts and subtypes, that you kind of take it step by step. Focus first, as Uranio said, on your subtype, finding out what your subtype is. That's a good doorway in because the subtype descriptions are clear and distinct enough in the way uh, we, we've written and talked about them uh, that you can more easily find which subtype you are because sometimes it's a little bit hard even to determine what your dominant instinct is. I know for me as a two, I think because I'm a heart type and I see this with a lot of heart types, I kind of thought I was sexual dominant at first because I'm relationship oriented and I'm very focused on connection and I can even get a little bit obsessive when I'm attracted to someone. Um, but what I found out um, when I studied the the instincts through and the dominant and the subtypes rather through Claudio Naranjo's work was that I am a self-preservation too in terms of the unconscious dynamics and the description of the type. Uh, I most fit that subtype. And that gave me a doorway in to seeing how the self-preservation instinct was actually dominant in me in a way that I never would have seen before. So we would advise going in the door of the subtype, then exploring your, your dominant instinct, and then as a next step, looking at your second instinct and your repressed instinct, even though it's very important and you can do some incredible work working with your repressed instinct. What I've seen working with people lately is when people get too focused too soon on finding out what the repressed instinct is, because it's, of course, very interesting to understand that about yourself, um, they can kind of get confused between which is which and what to work on first. Anything else you would say about about that? 
I like your points, and I just want to say that it's good to refrain from stereotyping when talking about the dominant and the repressed, like as if everybody who has that dominant or who has that repressed would will really look like. Uh, many times they do in several ways, but it's not that simple. So hold it lightly and... Uh, It's not that easy to work on the repressed if you are not in a sound, um, supported uh, developmental path. Um, it's it's difficult to work on it. There there may be uh, ways. There are other things to do first, and then come back to the theme of the repressed. So try not to be too obsessed with the repressed for now. But it's important <laughs> to know it exists and it's important to understand a few things behind it. Yes, especially if you hear Uranio talk about some of his stories about being self-preservation repressed, it can get very interesting to start thinking about the repressed <laughs> instinct and how that, that impacts your life. Uh, but, you know, how he forgets his wallet and how he forgets his phone in, in cabs and Ubers. Uh, these are things self-preservation repressed people can do. Um, but just just hold off a little bit because it, it, it'll help you more to understand yourself if you take that step-by-step -step approach. So now I, I'd like for us to focus our conversation on something that I think is very unique to the work that Uranio and I do with the instincts and the subtypes, and that is talk about the dimensions of the instincts. Just like we were talking before around the idea that the instincts aren't just biological or evolutionary, they're embedded within our personality. There are what we've noticed, these dimensions of instincts. What do we mean by dimensions of instincts? Well, there are ways that these instincts play out and reveal things about ours, ourselves that are not purely biological. First of all, there's the behavioral dimension of the instincts. Now, this is probably the most straightforward, and especially what we see when we talk about, say, particular subtype behavioral patterns, the, basically the idea that the dominant instincts play out in our behaviors. So certain there are certain behaviors that will be unique to people who are self-preservation dominant, social dominant, and sexual dominant, for instance. However, again, we always need to caution you Try not to overgeneralize because once you look at the instinct based on the nine types, they'll play out very differently depending on which type you are. But that said, the behavioral dimension is important. So in addition to the behavioral dimension of the instincts, there's the psychological dimension of the in instincts, which is very interesting. Then there's the somatic dimension of the instincts. Then there's a historical collective dimension to the instincts. And finally, there's a spiritual dimension to the instincts. Now, we'll talk about each of these dimensions one by one, because I think it's very important to start to see all of the different aspects of us that are connected to these very foundational elements of us that are the instincts. So... Rani, anything you want to say in addition to what I've said already about the behavioral dimension of the instincts before we move on? Sure. So I'll say just a little bit about some 
tendencies for each of the three instincts, both when it's uh, dominant and repressed, and then talk about what's behind it, still in this behavioral tendency dimension. So when it's self-preservation dominant, you can see a tendency for people to be to have more regularity uh, and even to be a little bit more prone to routines and uh, to avoid risks, uh, being risk-avoidant people. Um, and many times you see that these people are better organized or even more punctual. But again, it depends on what type the person is to see how much that will end up really being a characteristic of that person. Um, the thing is, whoever is self-preservation dominant holds a general unconscious sensation that life is threatened. Not only threatened uh, in episodes that are specific, but it's like sensing that life is permanently threatened. And behind this, there is a big fear of death or, or that someone goes really bad uh, that is most of the times unconscious. So it's not because you don't fear death that you say you're not a self-pressed dominant. Uh, you need to, to really understand these are very unconscious things. But yes, if you know other people of the same type, uh, your type, then you can compare yourself and ask if you're a little bit more like these, uh, like self-pressed in the things that we are talking about or not. Now, self-pressed repressed tend to be bold and have a lot of propensity to risk. And as B talked about me, which is true, very distracted, forgetful, and even sometimes disorganized. I don't think I'm too disorganized, but I'm more distracted and forgetful. So you don't need to have all these features if you are self-pressed, repressed yourself. Now, uh, this combines with my mental type five to make me be very distracted. So again, some features get more emphasized than others depending on type and depending on the particular person. Now, there is also some tendency for self-pressed, repressed people to be a little less aware of body needs and having some lack of attention to self-care themes uh, and being more irregular, right? Uh, now, if we talk about social instinct, the social dominance in general need more approval and recognition in order to sense that they are part of the group and they belong, then people who are not social dominants of the same type. Uh, so they are more concerned with image and they sometimes tend to be a bit more often in leadership positions and value teamwork or the cohesion of the team um, and being close to important people uh, but also perhaps become a little too political or even manipulative or ide too idealistic, while social repressed people 
maybe have low social skills to be in a group and to see group dynamics. They may become a bit more skeptical and even have irony towards social actions and and other uh, like nonprofits and be more individualistic while social dominance can be a bit more collectivist. Um, and the sexual instinct when dominant tends and when the sexual instinct is dominant, the person tends to be more intense. This is uh, very common for sexual dominance. And that can be seen in the outside as the person being more irrational or impulsive or lacking some logic. But it's just that big energy that comes up and makes the person be intense. And as B explained before, uh, there there is a drive to be competitive or even aggressive at times, impactful, and sometimes seductive and even possessive. While the repressed sexual is all the opposite, lacking intensity, and sometimes having a lower energy. And I don't mean lower energy to work or to, to be awake. It's not that. It's like a, a lower energy to confront or to engage or to just be there and meet someone in, in, in a more energized way. Uh, sometimes, not always, the repressed sexual has less access to anger and becomes excessively calm or even non-expressive or even shy. Uh, so these are uh, some of the uh, tendencies. Now, I, I explain a little bit what is behind for self-press. For sexuals that I've just explained, it's like what is behind for a sexual dominant is this sensation that that other important person is everything. And I focus my energy completely on that person. And the repressed sexual goes the other way and thinks, no, that's not very much for me. And the person may be in a relationship, but uh, it, it won't play as central a part in their life as for other people. Um, and also the repressed uh, sexual might say, I'm not as interesting or attractive than other people. And the social dominant, uh, I didn't mention this when I talked about it, uh, the, the person may sense in the inside unconsciously that they need to be important to be someone. If I'm not important, I'm no one. And the repressed social might sense i don't trust others i don't trust groups causes it's it's all not worthy uh, to trust and i don't trust the collective or humanity so remember to think about udanio's very excellent definitions he just gave in the context of your type and your history so these may fit really exactly to what you observe in yourself or you may need to interpret it a little bit more in, ter in terms of how it shows up in your particular type. Now, the next dimension we'll talk about is the psychological dimension. And this is the idea that the instincts are connected to central psychological issues for people and also 
psychological shadows. So shadows, parts of ourselves that we don't really want to see or admit or really know about ourselves at all. So I'll talk a little bit about these. And the first one, talking about self-preservation dominant people, oftentimes there is some sort of mother issue that is foundational for self-preservation people. Um, this is because the mother figure is sort of the earliest first protective figure. When children are born early on, the, there's an experience of, the, of child and mother being one. There's not even a really separate sense of self at first. And often we find that core issues or wounds for self-preservation dominant people happened early, early on in life. People who have had birth trauma or whose life was threatened when they were very small children in some ways. And they can also have actual issues with the mother. Sometimes this can mean being overly attached to the mother for uh, for longer in their life, way beyond childhood. Other times it can be kind of giving up on the mother, like not having experienced enough protection from the mother. And so kind of saying, uh, I need distance from my actual mother and I am going to take over that role of protecting myself. I'm going to sort of overfocus on self-preservation because I didn't get enough of what I needed from my mother. So it can sh show up in these different ways. Now, in terms of shadows, the dominant self-preservation person can have a shadow of being a bit selfish, of sort of not giving themselves fully to the world, kind of holding themselves back from sharing themselves with others. Uh, the repressed uh, self-preservation person can sometimes, as Uranio said, be a little bit reckless, engage in self-harm or suicidal tendencies, and just a general lack of personal care. This can have a psychological dimension to it in terms of the shadow, the part of ourselves that we don't really see. Now, the social uh, social dominant person, uh, in terms of their psychological issues, often has issues somehow connected to the father figure. And this is because, for one thing, when we include more people in our social sphere as children, when we aren't just related to the mother, but we grow up to the point where we now relate to father, now we're in a group. Uh, we're in the we're relating to mother and father and child. That's a group. And when we're more in a group, uh, we have more of a sense of relating to the father for the first time. Also, the father is archetypally the figure, the person in our lives who brings us out to the world, who supports our moving out into the world in a, in a way of entering into society or the social context. Oftentimes, people who are social dominant have issues with the father. Again, it can go one of a couple different ways. One is idealizing the father and kind of staying overly attached to the father as kind of an ideal, like my father was everything to me. Uh, another way it can go is, again, having a father who wasn't there for you, a father where there was a problem in that relationship that's pivotal, such that the person needs to kind of replace the father, needs to be their own protector, needs to be the person that overdoes kind of being in the world in the way that their father figure in playing the role for themselves that the father might have played for them. For them. The, the, the shadow of the dominant social person can be a kind of arrogance, a power shadow, a tendency to have a God complex, uh, to think that they are the savior of other people. When, uh, when the social instinct is repressed, the shadow can be more of a social awkwardness, a lack of 
tact or skill in saying the right thing in the group relating to, to the group or even a fear or skepticism of groups. And finally, the sexual instinct psychologically, we find that this the psychological issue connected to the to the sexual dominant person has to do with getting caught in the triangle between father, mother, and child. So this is the person who, uh, if they were uh, a boy, let's say, is is attached to the mother or had a strong bond with the mother and competed with the father, and it maybe even won the mother out over the father. We would call that the Oedipal winner. Uh, and so it could also be a young girl who was daddy's favorite or daddy's little girl or someone who had a special relationship with their father, such that on some level kind of could be psychological, won the father out over the mother. So there's almost a competition with the same sex parent. And again, we're talking archetypally here in terms of the masculine and feminine figure. Sometimes it isn't always concretely the father or the mother, but there was that triangle and there was a kind of competition or Oedipal situation or Electra situation in the case of girls where the child was somehow kind of caught between mother and father or was the winner over uh, the other parent. That's the sexual dominant kind of psychological setup that happens for those people. Now, in terms of shadows, the sexual dominant can have this unresolved Oedipal or Electra complex and being being kind of the Oedipal winner. So the one, and this can sometimes happen, you could see if, if the parents were divorced, let's say, and the little girl ends up living with dad or the little boy ends up living with mom and kind of becomes the parent or the partner rather of the of the of the parent so when these things happen it's kind of like they they won out also uh, having the predator instinct be strong in you as the sexual dominant dominant and then the repressed sexual is often the oedipal or electra loser uh the one who didn't win the parent out over the over the rival parent uh also they identify more in with the prey instinct. They end up being prey as opposed to the predator. So those are the psychological dimensions of the Enneagram. And, and if you're like me, you find this dimension fascinating. And what's interesting, and, and, and uh, Rania, I want to hear anything else you want to add to this or anything else you've observed. But when we do our retreats and we work at a deep level with people, we see these things playing out over and over again. So it's, it's not necessarily something we've done research on, but in terms of anecdotal evidence and the way we work with people, we really see these patterns being very, very persistent. Anything else you would add? I think your explanations were great, Lee, and just emphasize that when we analyze instincts through uh, this psychological perspective, it really informs our inner work agenda, what we need to do and we are not yet doing, like working on the mother-father or mother-father issues and complexes, and just just observe uh, as you listen to be how much there is behind instincts for us all to to learn from and to really take advantage of this study so why don't you talk a little bit about the somatic dimension of the instincts 
Yes, this is the third dimension of the instincts we talk about. And the body is really important. And depending on what the dominant instinct is and the repressed instinct is, we will have different parts of the body that will be more central for us to do work on. So usually what we observe is that although all three instincts start in the belly, that uh, self-preservation dominant and self-preservation repressed people have a contraction in the solar plexus region, which is more connected to life itself. Uh, and it's important to do exercises and techniques like in bioenergetics to release that tension and contraction from the solar plexus area or what we sometimes call the solar plexus energy ring. Uh, there is also a tendency for self-press, and, and here is only for dominance, to be a bit more introverted uh, than people of the same type who are not self-press dominance. And um, to be more introverted, the stronger that instinct is. But again, it if you're an introvert or not, it depends on type and on other things. It's complex, okay? Now, there are more physical contractions in general for people who are self-preservation dominant. They, they tend to be even more tense and anxious, uh, and that uh, impacts the body level. So for socials, both dominant and repressed, there is something to do in the cervical energy ring around the neck, the shoulders, and even the jaws. It's that area that gets more contracted for most people who um, are experiencing unconsciously the social issues that we all have. Now, when the social is dominant, there is a tendency for the person to express their, themselves more in the world, and the repressed does that less. And this um, impacts somatic dimensions of people and styles, per se, energy styles of those types. And last, the sexual or one-to-one -one, um, would benefit from doing some work to relax the pelvic ring, you know, around the waist and doing some work to be really flexible in there. And also, I'd say that the dominant has a high level of vital energy, while the repressed might have a lower level than average of vital energy when compared with other people of that type. And it's good for sexual dominance to balance energy and how it's used. And it's good for repressed to do something to raise the vital energy level. So now I'll talk about the historic collective dimension. This is the fourth dimension that we discuss when we talk about the different dimensions related to these instincts. So the historic collective dimension is very interesting. It, it reflects what might be contained in the person's ancestral history, and especially their collective familial ancestral history. Now, some of you may have heard of family constellation work. 
And this is a form of therapy or a therapeutic intervention when often done in groups, but also done potentially individually, where you kind of get in touch with ancestral patterns that have been happening or familial patterns that have happened through time that are still impacting a person's psychology or a person's personality or how they are in the world. And what we find when we work with people is that for each of these uh, instincts, there corresponds a kind, several themes that are often contained in the history of that person. So for instance, someone who's self-preservation dominant sometimes has an ancestral pattern or history, maybe even a few generations back, of people who were very involved in wars or had some sort of experience of hunger or privation, somehow being, you know, doing without, which as you can sort of see, can underlie a kind of self-preservation dominance. If you've had to go without food, uh, it becomes a, a real focus in your life. And so often there's, again, this collective historical pattern or even something like stealing among family members or stealing uh, as a trait or as a, as a pattern, sometimes maybe because there was privation. So these are themes we see connected in terms of the collective dimension that often exists in, uh, in the ancestry of self-preservation dominance. Now for social dominant people, we find that there are often themes and experiences related to slavery or torture or, or being persecuted as a group, like an ethnic or cultural group by another ethnic or cultural group, genocide, um, persecution, or even extermination of one group because of some sort of identity of that group, some sort of exploitation uh, or inequality experience, or even in, in imperialism, uh, where one group was dominated or taken over or persecuted simply because of their membership in that group. Now, for sexual dominance, we find that there is often historical themes of physical or sexual abuse, crimes of passion, uh, violence against individuals, homicide. Uh, so again, the sort of uh, extreme extensions of rivalry, competition, aggression of one person against another. So these are the kind of historical dimensions uh, that exist in the collective or ancestral realm uh, that can sometimes be uncovered in, in relationship to these instincts. Now, Oranio, do you want to talk about the last dimension that we talk about, which is the spiritual dimension? Yes, I do. So when the instincts are not distorted and they are working as they should, they, they are connected to a higher dimension, which is the spiritual, and connected in very particular ways. So what is self-preservation instinct when it's balanced and when it's healthy? And when the person is more uh, evolved in a higher level of awareness, it's the very capacity uh, to be in silence and contemplation in, in a deep state of prayer or meditation. Self-pressed dominance, therefore, have a, a very big door uh, into spirituality through silence and contemplation. 
I'd say it's it tends to be easier for self-pressed dominance to meditate. Like for socials, the the spiritual function associated with them is a little different. It's more service, and service is a spiritual thing when it's uninterested, when it's really opening your heart to seeing the other as so important without minimizing your own importance, but uh, humility in this more instinctual level. This is what social really means, uh, anonymous services to other people. And also the role of the community, uh, a spiritual group, uh, sometimes called Sangha, as in the Buddhist um, description of a community or spiritual group. Um, and the sexual instinct uh, connects to another spiritual dimension, which is the dimension that we call the non-dual experience, when we are truly merged and become one with any outer object. And we call this mystical union. It can be with nature, can be with an animal, can be with an individual, or can be with a spiritual guide. And this is easier for sexual dominance. And the sexual instinct also sometimes allows for some more fervor and intense experiences in spirituality that, when not distorted, can be helpful to open up uh, channels for a spiritual experience. And, and again, in the future, I'm sure we'll do many other podcasts about instincts. And we will even have specific podcasts to talk about the paths for growth for each of the three dominants. But uh, it's important to know that the instinctual sequence here also operates in all these dimensions. And there is much more to say about each of these spiritual dimensions. We just hope that you get how rich the discussion of instincts can be and how it's really not only an evolutionary thing. Yes. And so I'm sure a lot of you are now wondering, like, how do I work with my instinct and what else is there to know? And please do stay tuned because we will talk a lot more about this really, really important part of the Enneagram system. But now it's time for our top five. What is our top five today, B? So today our top five is the top five types or subtypes that focus a lot on making sure they work out or get exercise or do something to move their body. This could include people who regularly engage in yoga or Pilates or a sport of some kind or exercise of any kinds, uh, workout, going to the gym or running every day. These are people that we're thinking just kind of naturally have a tendency to engage in some sort of bodily activity on a regular basis. Is that, is that the way we wanted to characterize it? Yes, yes. Um, what is your number five? I'm very curious to see if our guesses will match or not. So my number five, and I, I have a lot of arrows because I've kind of gone back and forth with different types here, uh, but I would say my number five would be type two, my own type. 
Um, now I'm very dedicated to my running uh, practice. I go running almost every day when I can, um, but not all twos I would say do this, but I do think um, the heart types are focused sometimes on exercise because they're focused on image and what they look like. So I do think it can be a heart type thing, but number five is type two for me. What about you? What's your number five? My number five is type one. Um, I think that not all ones go do physical work, but um, but many do because it's correct, isn't it? it nowadays, like it's needed and it's the right thing to do. But also, they are body types, and as body types, I think that body types in general or in average are a bit more drawn to doing body work and exercising and so on. Um, and choose are my number four. B. I agree with all you said. I just think that, um, you know, to talk again about the role of instincts, uh, maybe you will see more sexual choose going to the gym to work out with the muscles and, and you know, more concerned with um, aesthetics or with image but and maybe you'll see more choose running or just doing aerobics uh, maybe it's just a hypothesis but i think that choose in general do a lot of exercise yeah i think so too and my number four is seven actually and it's funny that you said that about body types i was actually sort of thinking some body types because they're the, in this triad of self-forgetting sometimes don't really take care of their body which can be a little bit paradoxical or ironic but my number four is seven and this is because i think sometimes sevens have a very active energy and i know some sevens that sort of need to move because they have a lot of active energy especially if they have some underlying anxiety that they may not be in touch with and sometimes sevens can avoid being in touch with the those kinds of emotions or feelings um so i my number four was seven Interesting. So my number three is eights. I see lots of eights doing sports. I think they're easily drawn to, to sports of all kinds, but mostly impact sports. Uh, I, I don't see many eights doing yoga or even Pilates. Pilates, yes, but um, only when they are uh, growing. They are on a path. Uh, eights need to, usually when in personality, they go for more intense exercises. And by the way, one thing that helps really develop eights is any sport in which you need to use the right force, the right strength to, to be successful, like golf or even basketball because that's not easy for eights. But uh, anyway, I think eights uh, do lots of uh, body work and sports. What is your number three? Yeah, my number three is eights also. Um, I, I think sometimes they tend to like work out, weightlifting, things like that. I know, know sometimes eights will like go to the gym. Um, I, I know that from some of the people I know uh, and for much the same reasons that, that you said, exactly. Um, and I'll go right on to my number two. And my number two is um, actually type three. 
and especially self-preservation threes. I find that some of the threes that I know are very, very into their exercise routine. Uh, and partly I think this is because they tend to be very active doers. And also again, because there's sometimes an image orientation, like I need to work out to make sure I look good. Mm. Okay. My number two, uh, and, and I use subtypes for my number two and my number one. My number two is sexual six. I see so many sexual sixes working out doing muscle work they need to be strong and so on and um, you know sometimes when you see those uh, people in, in jeans and looking increasingly scary <laughs> many times they can be sexual sixes of course not only but many times mm. yeah you're right I hadn't thought about sexual sixes. I was thinking more about sixes as a category, but yeah, that's a really good point about sexual six. So my number one, interestingly, is ones. And it's interesting that it was your number five, but most of the ones I know, maybe it's because they're routine oriented. Maybe it's because they are motivated to be very active to move the angry energy in them they don't necessarily want to feel or express but a lot of the ones in my life are really really regular about some sort of activity or another uh, i think i've said before on the podcast that i grew up with two ones my father and my brother are both ones now of course this is a very small sample but like my my father my whole life has been very dedicated to playing one sport or another like three times a week. It was when I was growing up, it was badminton uh, and then it was racquetball. And now because he can't go inside to play racquetball during the pandemic, he's taking up pickleball, which they're playing at the park down the street. So it's it's I've just always had this sense of my father absolutely needing uh, to, to do some form of sport. Now, my brother isn't really a sports guy. He gave up sports in high school because when he became a, a musician, but he rides his bike everywhere and he's very fit. And it's part beca partly because he really likes riding his bike and he makes a point of riding it as much as he can. What about you? Interesting. Yeah, I think you know more about ones than I do. And I I was really interested in what you were saying. You know, sometimes the ones also use sports to be more relaxed during that time that they are practicing. Not always, sometimes they are really rigid also, but uh, I, I've seen ones that develop some more flexibility in that activity first, and then they take that to their lives. Um, but my number one is sexual three. And I believe that, you know, I know so many sexual threes and most of them are among people who go the most to gyms, like every day and so on. So many cases that I know. And I, I hear you when you talk about self-press threes, and I think that also happens, but I think it's more for uh, sexual threes. Sometimes we say that they tend to be 
the prototype of what is expected for a man or a woman in the society we're in and at least in societies like in the US or Brazil uh, where you know being physical and attractive is really valued or also here in the UK where I, where I live now where fitness is really well seen I think that sexual threes just go crazy to do it so this is my number one interesting i i've seen something different in this but i i don't i'm not i'm not sure i'm right about this but most of the some of the se sexual threes i know describe being actually a little bit lazy sometimes about certain things um but the self-preservation threes i know th those are some of the people i know who they will not miss a day of running like even when they travel or they're at a conference or something like when i travel i give up on the running but they will find a way so again it's just my perception it's just based on some of the people i know i'm not sure that i'm right about this but my sense and i think it's that self-preservation thing too with threes where they they can be the biggest workaholics and the self-preservation instinct I find sometimes shows up as this sort of need for routine. But anyway, my experience has been really noticing that the self-preservation threes in my life are the most addicted of almost anyone to needing to get their run in and, and really not being able to live if they don't. Uh, but again, that, that's just what I've seen. So, yeah. Isn't it interesting? This is why I love doing this um, top five with you always. We contrast, we learn. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm uh, looking back to Brazil and so many people there who are sexual threes, you know, working out like crazy. Right, right. But yeah. who knows? It might be cultural. Yeah, there is a cultural dimension to so many of these things. Okay, well, thank you for listening. And join us again on our Enneagram 2.0 podcast, where we talk about all things Enneagram. Yeah, Enneagram 2.0, find your personality. Uh -huh. Chestnut pies, Enneagram Academy. What's your type? What's your subtype? So much you can learn. You can be amazing. Go ahead and transform. It's for yourself and others. Grow and follow the flow. And also for the planet. Yeah, let your mind blow. It's from B and Yorano. Time for you to know and be your best self with Enneagram 2.0. Psychology, self-mastery, working relationships, spirituality, come and join the podcast, oh yeah, we'll be fun, explore the challenges that from now you'll overcome, hey, Graham 2.0, tune in, yeah, it's your personality, Graham 2.0, chestnut pies, Enneagram Academy, hey, Graham 2.0, tune in now.